Support for WERU comes from Penelope Shar, MD, integrative medicine practice in Bangor, offering detoxification, intravenous vitamins, bioidentical hormone therapies, and more. On the web at optionsinhealing.com or 217-8878. You're listening to WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming at WERU.org. We're a voice of many voices. We're volunteer-powered. And don't forget... We are listener-supported. WERU in East Orland, Maine, transmitting from Blue Hill, Maine. Stand by for healthy options coming your way in just a few seconds. It is going to be low of 42 tonight, high of 47 tomorrow, and clear, mostly sunny tomorrow. So a little rain right now, but stay tuned for healthy options. Healthy Options, a program that explores integrative health therapies. Today we'll be talking with our guest, Martine Prechtel, on the subject of a different view of depression and addiction. Many people in our culture suffer from depression, and if you've been reading the news lately, you know that drug addiction, especially to prescription opiates, is skyrocketing here in Maine. Here on Healthy Options, we've done shows on drug treatment and rehabilitation, and we've covered the law enforcement aspects of the war on drugs. But today, we're going to take a broader look at the cultural roots of depression and drug addiction. I work with drug addicts, and they tell me two things. First, none of them wants to be a drug addict. And secondly, they take drugs to avoid feeling deep emotional pain. Today, we'll look at where that pain comes from and how we can transform that pain into something truly beautiful. This is a live call-in show. I just want to remind listeners, so join us in about 30 minutes at 866-625-9378 with your questions and your comments. A master of eloquence and innovative language, Martine Prechtel is a leading thinker, writer, and teacher whose work, both written and oral, hopes to promote the subtlety, irony, and pre-modern vitality hidden in any living language. As a half-blood Native American with a Pueblo Indian upbringing, his life took him from New Mexico to a Mayan village in Guatemala where he became a shaman, and then back to his native New Mexico, where Martin teaches at his international school, Bolad's Kitchen. Among his many books are Secrets of the Talking Jaguar, Long Life Honey in the Heart, and his most recent book, The Smell of Rain on Dust. Welcome, Martin. Nice to have you back again. Good morning. How are you? Well, you guys, I'm down here. I just got done milking my goats. Good morning. How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're we're doing just fine here in Maine. It's not the sunniest of days. Perhaps uh, this is a good time to see if we can uplift our spirits on on these particular <laughs> subjects of depression and and addiction. But it's been a pretty good winter overall. Good. Yeah, we got a pretty cold one our stuff. So we got lots of snow on the ground and stuff. Oh, well, you got you got all ours. Right <laughs> oh, really? You guys need any? Okay. No, we don't. We, we don't have any. <laughs> uh, you guys always have water up there. I've, I've heard about your drought. Yes, we, we do. Get that wet in the drought in a, in a good season. Things to praise and feel grateful for. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, I'll believe. Well, you know, uh, we we talked last fall, 
And yeah. I had so many thoughts about your book, The Smell of Rain on Dust. And I got to thinking about this topic of depression and addiction. And I, I want you to talk a little bit about grief and its relationship to depression. And I want to start off just with a quote from the book. It says, grief is not depression. A griever is not depressed. Depression comes from not being able to grieve, which converts our losses into violence. What do you mean right. by this? <laughs> okay. We could talk for a couple hours, I know. I was going to say we're going to have an hour. All right. <laughs> oh, well, you said it already there. The thing is, um, grief, uh, you know, these words are just words. So, you know, this can mean a lot of different things. But by grief, it's the idea um, that you can still feel. And a person who's depressed can still feel. But the thing about grief in a culture where grief is, like, looked upon as a non-business partner, you know, it's like something you can't make any money on, then what happens is you lose your capacity to grieve for whatever reason. Grieving meaning, like, not only when somebody dies, or when you lose a country or a way of life, but when you lose yourself or you lose the way you're going or you lose something you believe in or you never were able to believe in anything, when the grief is, is a natural occurrence uh, that humans have, like a, a built-in medicine that we all have. You know, like you get a cut, you heal. And the grief is the, is the medicine that heals that, that deep uh, um, vacancy, that loss, that hole that's shot through you. And but it takes time, and it also takes the culture to understand it, and it's also an altered state of existence. In other words, you don't you don't live the same way when you're in a, in a grief situation that you would in a so-called <laughs> normal situation. Don't give me on civilization here. But um, so when that does not happen, it's not allowed or it's not taught that it's okay because you don't really need to be taught, but it's just natural. When it's no longer a natural thing, then what happens is the grief ha is not going to, the loss is not going to go away. The loss, the whole, the wounds are going to be there. And so what people are asked to do is to swallow it and just keep going. And some people are pretty tough. They can go for a while like that, but not really. Eventually, it goes somewhere else. So what happens is the person begins to petrify. And, I mean, there's so many permutations of this, but a lot of times what happens is your own uh, being, your own soul, uh, needs that grief and needs that time to heal, needs that expression. It's actually a, a form of making beauty out of the loss so that future life can happen. Like I said, when that doesn't happen, then you get a, you get a, a stonewall situation of depression. The Mayans, where I used to live, they call it, they call it the beast. Heart, the sadness hardens and becomes like a tumor or becomes like a bullet. And it's either going to be shot to the neighbors, exported on another country in a business form, or it's going to be in the case of depression, which I consider those other things, by the way, depression as well. I don't consider depression just the individual, but the whole country. But um, the individual then is experiencing, uh, well, it stops experiencing, <laughs> is what happens. And stop experiencing, and the depression of the violence is then ex no longer exported, but is maintained and internalized, and so the violence is against one's own self. So grief, you can't just say, okay, well,
well, then all we have to do is all sit down and cry and we won't be depressed, which is not the case. Because grief in itself is not a matter of just being sad. Grief is an actual ecstatic uh, motion that uh, actually makes life into beauty. It's the basis of, uh, as far as I'm exactly wrote in the book, uh, of all beauty and all art and all um, inspiration. So depression, of course, is, is that one that all sits down, as you will know. So. Um, I'm trying to be short here. So you, <laughs> I know, I know. Because I'll roll for hours. I, I know, and there, there's so much here to talk about. And um, for uh, people who aren't familiar with uh, the book, which I would suggest, The Smell of Rain on, Death, on Dust is definitely a book that if you have issues with depression is something that you would, I think, could be very helpful um, when we talk about this grief and we look at it from a culture aspect, explain a little bit about how, you know, your upbringing uh, in the Pueblo and then your experience. Now, you spent, what, 20 years in Guatemala? Well, I don't think as long as that. It gets longer and longer as time goes on, but I think more <laughs> closer to 15 years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. and, and how, how does that culture compare with our culture here in the U.S. as far as, the expression of grief and handling losses. We know there are always going to be losses in life. Yeah, there, there's yeah, no way we right. can mitigate life that. Life is full of loss. That's the thing. That's why it becomes so necessary because it's going to be there. It's not like, okay, well, that's the, the modern idea is that if we get it right, it's going to be all like Star Trek. We won't have any loss. You know, everybody right. will be embalmed forever. And, and all the bad know. things will go away. And they're all, you know, well, it's not bad things. It's just all pain will disappear, which is, you know, the use yeah. of drugs. So, <laughs> The uh, I must also preface this by saying that a lot of the things I write about in this book are extinct in the village and where they used to not be extinct on account of the incursion of them, the more, you know, Euro-American way of life, and they are now suffering all of the same things that everybody else is in the, in the you know, so-called modern world. So, but as it was when I knew it and growing up, the idea was that... Um, one thing is uh, grief and praise. Grief and praise. A praise always in English sounds like some sort of silly little thing that sits in the back burner. And grief, I think, is like five miles behind that. But in Mayan, they can't separate the terms. They actually come into the same, they mean the same thing. That's why I put them in English. The idea is that if you lose something and you don't grieve, or something is lost to a people and they, they're, they're incapable of making uh, an expression of grief, a manifestation of beauty relating to the grief, that means that they don't really love what they lost. And so it's a dishonor. Because the idea is that when you, you lose something, the something itself is not lost. In other words, when a person dies, they're not dead. They, and they're dead to us. We are sad because they're gone from us, but they're not gone from the bigger state of things. So they need our praise. They need our grief in order to get uh, a more further life. So when people are in those cultures, they see somebody fall into a deep, you know, state of grief when you lose your best friend or your mother or you have to bury somebody or, God forbid, you know, you lose a child or, God forbid, you lose your own homeland. When they see somebody going into that state, they don't go, oh, well, let's give these guys some drugs so they stop running around, you know, yelling and all that. And they actually help them. They'll go out there and do it together. <laughs> you know, it's like this big, gigantic, um, together grieving thing. And it can go on for days and it can even go on for weeks. And then sometimes even longer than that, which we can talk about at some of the point. But 
the difference then is is that the the person is um, you know they don't look like they're doing they're supposed to show up for work they're full of tears they they say absurd things they're maybe even irrational they may even say some violent things but no one acts on it they they just uh, say well you know of course you feel this terrible pain you just got to rise it's got to go somewhere so yeah that that just, to me I think is what we it, you know? we you so miss. Yeah. I think what we so miss in this culture is is setting aside a time for a person who has experienced a loss yeah. and letting them allowing them a, a safe environment where they can be they can say irrational weird things. Yeah, and that's what a village <laughs> you know? is, actually is. And so yeah. what the thing is you can't just make that into a program, but it would be better if people understood that you know they need time out because it's healthy. Because if you don't do that, you're going to get some sort of sickness later on, and somebody's going to have to pay for that. And so, you know, governments won't do anything unless it's cheaper for them. But the thing is, you can't calculate grief. Because a lot of times, grief doesn't hit. You know, I mean, I'm sure everybody's listening. If there's anybody listening, there's, you know, when you experience a loss, sometimes you're in this, like, numb trance. And the grief itself doesn't really descend at that point. It descends maybe a little bit later. So you can't say, okay, now it's time to grieve. Turn it on. Mm, here we go. You know, it's got, yeah, we want to do that in our culture. Yeah. And so the drugs are what controls that, you see. And so you you have to allow that to happen and have to be understood by the people. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. minds are so great because they have no verb to be, so there's no absolutism. So when they when they see somebody in a state that's different, they say, you know, just see where this road goes. And then they go on it with them and everybody comes out and there you go. But the thing, the other thing that's, you know, in a, in a Protestant and in Christian sort of backgrounds is the idea is, is that grieving for loss is considered to be a, a frivolous thing. But as you can see with drug addiction, there's nothing frivolous about it when you get to that stage. Because the, they look at it it's like, okay, if you're going to another world that's better than this one, what are you crying about? Well, so I'm not the one going, you know. I miss my friend. I miss my country. I miss my, my sweetheart. So these things uh, mean you a lot. And you have nerve endings, and if you have nerve endings, that means you're in love with life. So if you have the capacity for love, then it's a possibility that you don't need to be depressed. So grief is not you can't use it as a substance. You can't shoot it up your arm. You can't go to the doctor and get somebody to give you the grief treatment. You have to learn how. So it's not taught in the schools. It's not taught in the culture. Where you're asking me about these other cultures, it's actually taught. They actually have a sound they teach you to make so that it brings it out of your soul. And if you can't do it, they get these old ladies that come down and do it for you until you get going. <laughs> the, <laughs> they have an all night. Professional grievers. There they go. You know, I think all people had this. I think everybody, you know, Irish talk about it and, and they get lost somewhere. I mean, it was actually. In Europe, it was actually a band. I got, I got that in the book. There's a couple mm-hmm. of edicts there, like in 599, they actually banned public grieving of funerals because they considered it anti-Christian. And you're like, okay, that's very strange. Trying to ban somebody's, you know, emotion. Weird, you know. But well, and I think now, now in our culture, it's considered a weakness. You yeah, know, you're supposed definitely to, because it keeps you off the front lines, you know. Yeah, you're so supposed to be the strong person, especially for men. You're supposed to be a strong person. You're supposed to be able to take it. You're supposed but to mask your feelings. You the, the biggest grievers in that village, which I always loved, were, were the men. Yeah. But then the thing I gotta throw in here because I can never get any Americans to talk about it is um, the praise aspect of grief. Because if you allow someone to grieve fully and let them blast, you know, where they're not afraid of, you know, what somebody's thinking about them, you know, they're not looking at themselves on some yeah. movie. 
eventually it ends up in a great big gigantic praise of having been given enough life to have lost in the first place. Almost every time the person comes down to the fact that it's so great to be alive, I want to be alive, I feel so rotten I lost this person, I feel so bad that this thing died, blah, blah, blah. And then it comes down to, oh, what a beautiful day this is. It's amazing to live, amazing to live. And then you start praising everything. I know this lady is a doctor in Oregon, and she's a good friend of mine, and she, she was reading this book, and she was just at an amputation. A lady had just lost a leg to diabetes, an older lady. She said as soon as she lost her leg, she started praising everything, the scalpels, she started praising the doctors, she started praising the sun, everybody that walked by. She became like this saint for like five days, just praising everybody. She said, I saw exactly what you meant. There were tears all went to praise. So, so is this because the... the that's not depression. We, <laughs> no, but, you know, in our culture, we, we go into that depression. And is that because we haven't properly grieved? We don't know how to grieve. That's because you don't really have a culture. Because if you have a culture, you're going to grieve. So the thing is to work on making a culture, not to be a real Martinez here. But, yeah, there's no place for grief, but there's also no place for depression. There's also no place for praise. There's also no, all of it. If it's not making money because everybody counts the value and how much they got at the end of the game, um, then it's not valued. Instead of the person who can praise and grieve the most eloquently. Remember in the old village, I used to be a, a leader. I was a, a chief of sorts and, you know, a minor chief, but there were big guys in the past. And when I was, I was only in my early 20s, you know, and I, people say, oh, there goes the most and most uh, valuable and most rich man in our town. And I'd look and there'd be this four foot two guy full of patches hobbling down the road with a cane. And it's because he provided the most feast, he was the most eloquent in speaking to keep the holies alive, to keep the earth alive. He was the one the most in love, and he's the one that had lost the most and given the most out of those losses, turning them into beauty. Boy, I tell you what. After a while, I started to see what that really meant. And, you know, I've written a lot of books on it, but it's just like, I just couldn't believe it. And I never really put those two things together, like, in a literal literal way, grief and praise, until I came back from Guatemala during all the wars, watching everybody die. And I didn't have time to grieve during those wars, knowing what that was like. You couldn't take the time, because if you spent the time, you'd be killed. And I came back, and I was very, very ill. My whole body got uh, crippled. I had to go through all these things, and I finally one day the dam broke, you know, and then I started to get healed. There was a bunch of uh, native people up in Montana helped me with that. But um, so when you say the dam I broke, did. you mean that's when you really started grieving? You had I could I you finally were, had you could. time. I finally, you know, martial law was off. In other words, I wasn't have to keep looking over my shoulder. Yeah, you didn't have a price on your head, and yeah. Yeah, well, I had a price in my head. That wasn't very high, you know. <laughs> it was last depressing. So I, I finally, well, it wasn't a conscious thing. It just all of a sudden, boom, all that grief. Oh, my God. And I mean, I've never grieved all fully for all of that. So what I do is I make beauty every day of my life. I try to make beauty the way I speak. I try to make beauty with my hands, the way I make school. I'm constantly involved with making more life out of that loss. So... I'm not saying everybody else has to go to that extent, but the thing is, is in a culture where that is not looked upon as something to do, you're going to have depression, you know, and depression all of a sudden is, you know, not only epidemic, but it's become a way of life, and it's almost expected. And um, So, so is depression then sort of a way of being stuck? I mean, you can't, you can't move forward because you haven't dealt with this giant 
ball well, of grief, is, and I you're in a culture that, yeah, that sure, doesn't encourage you. I don't think a single human being, you know, see, there's all kinds of grief, too, and depression arising from all different things. There's grief that you inherit. And a single human being, you know, I mean, how the heck are they going to deal with, you know, five generations of alcoholic uh, stuff that's in your family and this being pushed around, all these beatings. And stuff. One little tiny little kid growing up in that, there's no way, you know, it, it, all he's going to try to do is escape to survive. And, you know, some people go to California or Hawaii and some people take Well, so what, so what does know? someone do if they are caught in that generational Well, what, what generally situation? happens is that then, you know, you confuse your own personal grief, which happens like we were speaking of earlier, like everybody's grief, you know, just growing up is grief strength, just being born is grief in it. But those things get confused and lumped onto the ancestral griefs, which, you know, are, are not the same things at all. And when it, uh, you don't do your grief, if you have children, you're going to pass it on to your grandkids. You don't usually pass it on to your kids, pass it on to your grandkids. It jumps a generation. So you say, what do you do? But the problem is with that what do you do thing, Andre, is that that's the American thing. Is that, okay, I'm going to find a technique. I'm going to find a drug. I'm going to find something. Push this button. It's going to fix it. And that's what created grief in the first place, because it keeps trying to escape it. So the idea is that you got to start making beauty. Everybody says, well, that's ridiculous. What are you, some kind of art therapist? <laughs> I'm definitely not an art therapist. But you, you, have to, you have to, I mean, when you have a depression situation, one, you can't deal with all that junk by yourself. And it's just no way. Okay, so, so know, number you one, you can't you deal with other people, yeah. But you need a culture. There is no culture waiting for you there. So you you have to have a friend, you have to go somewhere, and you got to begin practicing grieving. I mean, you're not going to do it right away. You have to practice. And then you have to practice, not practice, but actually make beauty. And that I know. You love something. There's a, a lovely part in the book where you talk about uh, the ocean and a friend. Yes. And we live right here on Penobscot Bay. Yeah. yeah, and and. A lot and of it. How how would literally how would a person if a person wanted or was 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 feeling this grieving and they wanted to do it the best they could knowing mm. that there's not a culture out there to support them right. how how does the ocean and a friend what's that scenario about well the thing is is that uh, well you know I'm so primal I mean I grew up that way so to me the ocean is not an object. Or it's not just a place, and it's not just a landscape. It's just a very much alive, holy being. And the ocean is made of salt, and the ocean is made of the exact same constituency as the, uh, the beautiful womb of the women in the amniotic waters and our tears. So in all science, all water on the earth anyway is always trying to find a way to get to the ocean. You know, all the rivers, all the streams, which you know well about in, in Maine. So... What it is, the idea is that grief being a natural thing, the water can take that. The water can receive it. The water would like it. The water wants your tear water. The water wants your grief. The water wants your absurd things you say when you're in that state. It likes it. So with Mayans, they always say, and that's what I say, and this is, you know, it sounds a little bit uh, simplistic, but you have to have a friend, somebody who promises not to like judge you or analyze you or, you know, push you this way or anything. Just make sure you don't bash your head out and make sure you got enough uh, food and that you're warm. Of course, in the winter, it's pretty icy. It's not at the time, but in the summer, you know, when you can, you go down to the ocean where there's no people. And 
you tell the ocean and you give offerings to the ocean and you go three days every day and the first day no, you know it may not start rolling by the second day you're going to be rolling all those tears are going to be rolling and they're going to be rolling and your friend watches over you keeps off all the tourists and the lucky loose and keeps you from you know throwing yourself over the cliff into the sea and brings you back and fills you with warm soup and puts your baby by and don't let you use the iphone and then the next day you're going out again. By the third day, then you go off in a little more inland and start warming up in some hot spring or get a warm shower and then start healing. And then you got a couple of weeks there with your friend or whoever. It can be more than one friend. God, if you have more than one friend, more the better. But uh, where, you know, you start, you begin to start to sing and you start to sing yourself back to life or someone starts to sing you back to life, Indian style. So um, I found that to be very, very useful and very, very good, especially people who have an ocean nearby, and most people don't. But, you know, it's, it's just amazing how the water can pull all of that, that terrible struggle out of your body. And the same with drug addiction as you're trying to heal. There's an enormous grief that starts to well up because all this stuff that's been suppressed all of a sudden goes to the surface and is exacerbated 20 times. So the water is the place to continually to visit and, um, and ask, in a very kind, polite way, uh, if she would please receive your grief, because she turns it back into, what? Life. Because that's what all the amniotic fluid is. It's all tears that go back into making more life. And any scientist would tell you, and uh, Christians don't like it, but life came out of the sea. So you can even feel that if you're giving up your depression, if you're yeah, grieving, so you're, you're, your... you're giving a gift. Yes. yes I like that. Right. <laughs> you're, you're trying to give a gift. You're doing your best to give a gift. Yeah. And that makes you worthy. You know, yes. people feel like little tiny little people. That feels good when you're depressed. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of times so, when you're I mean, depressed, you don't feel worthy. Yeah. And then the the thing is that you can get pressed, professionally depressed because you can get your identity of being unworthy instead of all of a sudden having the responsibility of being worthy and having my, my neurosis is I feel obligated to give gifts <laughs> constantly. <laughs> to the sunrise, to the mm-hmm. animals, to mm-hmm. the plants, and to all the life we live. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the one that gave us this beautiful capacity. A lot of people didn't have beautiful lives coming up. But it's time. This is the hard part I always say, and no one's going to like this, but it's time for people who can feel the most, who end up being the most depressed, to be the big blessers. They're the ones that got to learn to bless. Oh, I like the rest that. Of, you I know, like they're going to be the blessers. And you got to learn to bestow what you never got from anybody before. You know, you were a kid, your parents weren't like, it's so great, or you didn't even have any. Uh, and you didn't get initiation when you were 14. You didn't get this great cultural consideration when you have grief. It's time for you to make that happen for somebody else. And that's how you turn back into a human being. It's hard to do because you don't know what it feels like. You don't know what it looks like, how you're supposed to do it. It's a hell of a lot to ask people, but that's what I say. Yeah, it seems like this is new territory for us in this culture. And I think that maybe some of the reasons why when people feel depressed, they don't do the things you're suggesting is that they don't feel safe. They don't feel like they have a safe enough environment. Well, they're right. They're right. (laughs) So this is something we can do for each other. Yes, we need a friend. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people don't have a friend, but, you know, they're, like I said, if you have somebody who understands this and gone gone the route, as they say, you know, or a vet or something, then, uh, you know, that person will recognize somebody who needs a friend. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe give them a little gentle nudge toward the sea. You know, I, I I just had a baby horse born in a snowdrift way up here in the other ranch in the mountains, that, you know, like 10 below zero, and I thought she was going to die. And I got there on the bush, and I was watching her mother nudge this baby out of the snow and get her on her feet and get her dried off, and she was doing great. But the mother had to, you know, like go, okay, you, you're not going to lay around here. you got to move, man. Let's go. Let's go. Get the heart pumping. And so that's what friends do. Yeah, that's what friends kind of do, you know, and then uh, then you know, have somebody that loves you, and that's what parents do. They're good, I mean, and uh, I know there's just so many permutations of this thing, but um, staying depressed, you know, like that, that's, uh, that's going with the flow, and um, it takes, I know, a lot of effort, and it's really difficult to know where to go and what to do, especially when you're blitzed out with all kinds of substances, whether it be legal or illegal. So... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, grieving is not going to be like something you're going to be able to do to get over depression, but grieving is what's done in order not to have depression in the first place. Right, which is the ideal thing, is prevention. And then if you're already in a depressed state, which I think a lot of people are, then it's maybe more difficult. Yeah, very difficult. But the thing is is that it's exacerbated by the culture because the culture actually likes you to be depressed because they can tell you anything, thanks when you're in a bad state, you know, and you just, uh, to be able to get to a place where you're not scared, or if you're scared, you're courageous, because, I mean, a lot of us Courageous, yeah. But yeah. you become courageous, and that takes a lot to ask you. That's what always is a mystery, you know, and it's a little bit, it makes a person angry to think about it, but most of the people who have done great things in the world, who are doing great things in the world, don't get frontline to front page, you know, coverage, and they've made light years of effort just to get up in the morning, you know, and nobody knows about it, you know, but they're doing it and they're out there trying really, really hard. And there's a, a, a gorgeous praise of that that has to be let out, and that's part of grieving. Anybody who praises and doesn't weep at the end of the praise is just telling you a lot of glee club nonsense, see? Mm-hmm. because the praise is lots of grief in it because it recognizes the tenuous na- uh, nature of what it is to be a human alive on this earth. It's not a for sure thing that everything's going to go right. So the thing is, when you have a group of people that recognize that together, then you have beauty, then you have poetry, then you have the ritual of being a human being who tries to make something work for somebody else. So, you know, I'm a very spiritual yeah. person, and not just with people, but with all the whole world. So I try to end up going a little that direction, but not, you know, I'm trying to stay away from that right now because I understand the situation there. But uh, depression, uh, even the term, is just kind of a catch-all for a lot of things that not necessarily fit, fit the, the title as far as I'm concerned. And addiction, of course, is just uh, the nature of the culture. The culture is addicted, period. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the whole culture is depressive. They may not be in deep depression, but half the therapists I know are depressed, and they don't want to hear what I have to say because they just want to miss it and, and get over with it so they can get home and get more depressed watching the tube. But the addiction is a natural thing inside a culture that's addicted to finding substances or finding uh, uh, behaviors or finding recreation in order to make everybody forget that this culture was based on people who lost everything, came here and displaced the people that were here and made them grief-stricken people. And it's just an on and on and on and on generational grief thing. Somebody's got to stop, stay home, and be contented with the beauty that is here and begin to praise that and then somehow make it so they are willing to live in such a way that they're willing to plant hope for a time they will never see. A person becomes
becomes a human being, when they begin and they stop being depressed and they begin to become good grievers, when they can start to make a culture for people that they don't know, that have not been born yet, that they themselves will not necessarily ever see. And this is very unmodern. Everybody says, I want mine, I want mine. The world's going to end with an atom bomb. I don't care, blah, 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 blah. I, I like your pre-modern vitality. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I call it. Not postmodern, pre-modern reason. vitality. I want to remind <laughs> listeners that we are so fortunate this morning to be talking with uh, – Leading writer, thinker, and teacher, Martine Practel. This is a live call-in show. Uh, we will be opening the phone lines, and that phone line is 866-625-9378. So please call us with your questions and comments for Martine. He is an endless source of great hope and, and pre-modern vitality, <laughs> which I, I always thoroughly enjoy. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more. I mean, if there's a way, there are ways out of this. And, yeah. and, and what we're talking about this morning, everybody can, if you look at the whole problem, might be kind of overwhelming. But if you can have a friend, if you can have one friend, if you can have two friends, and from that, if you can have a community. Here in Maine, we have small communities. And actually, I've lived in the same community for over 30 years. And 30 years ago when I moved here, in all my excitement about having a farm and goats and all these other things, I never thought about how wonderful it would be 30 years later having this wonderful group of friends. Because we have been through everything together. There's nothing to hide. We don't have any secrets. We've been through (laughs) death and divorce and marriages and kids going to prison and hard financial times. And, you know, I think when when you get that relationship with a friend, one friend, two friends, a community, then you have that basis, that that prevention uh, or that that safety net that I think you're you're talking about. And our, our culture, we don't tend to honor that. It doesn't make any money. So, you know, the the guys that I deal with um, who are drug addicts tell me over and over again they have so much deep emotional pain that the drugs are a way of not feeling anything, sort of a default position. Now, in your book, you talk about kind of the the outcomes of this depression if it's left unchecked and that that can be violence. So talk about the relationship between... I mean, is, is, is drug addiction actually a form of violence to yourself? Yeah. I mean, drug addiction is definitely a violence to yourself and also to um, your obligation to make life. Um, of course, the availability and all that, everyone tries to always you know, control all that, and it's got nothing to do with the situation. The situation is such that um, you're always trying to numb up what's killing you. And, I mean, it's pretty natural. You know, it's the John Wayne method of doing stuff, you know, where uh, you see the enemy, you shoot him. You know, so obviously the primitive idea is I feel pain. It's the pain that's causing me trouble, so let me shoot the pain. And it's not the pain that's causing you trouble. It's the pain is the little red light, you know, on your dashboard that's saying, um, something's going on here. Let's take a look at what it is. So instead of, you know... Uh, so you're shooting the piece, messenger. Really. Yeah, what you're doing is putting a piece of tape over the red button. <laughs> yeah, the red yeah. Light. So, and then, of course, that just goes somewhere else and goes somewhere else and goes there. As a human being, it's a pretty amazing organism because the, the red light's going up here and it doesn't work. Well, then I go up over here and I just exacerbate 
need more and more and more and more and more and more stuff to, to kill it. So the point is that uh, if you can feel pain, then the idea is that you've got to metabolize the pain. You can't kill the pain. You've got to metabolize the loss into something useful. And I know that sounds pretty, you know, nebulous and alchemical, and indeed it is. But humans are pretty uh, ecstatic. And, uh, I mean, one of the craziest ideas of modern thinking is, is that humans are capable of being rational. Humans are not rational beings at birth. They're crazy to begin with. So the idea is, is that they're actually ecstatic beings. Humans are made to be ecstatic, which means you feel to the point of ecstasy, which is not euphoria and not drug-like. It's actually full of grief and full of pain and full of beauty. It's okay, like we have... We have a caller on the line. We have Will oh, from Appleton. You have a question for Martine? Go ahead, Will. Um, not necessarily a question, just a call in. I think, you know, it, Mr. Pretzel is obviously correct. There's so many things in, in the modern um, age and era which is defeating our connection to nature and our ability to be able to remember ancient knowledge. And it was just more of a, as a call in about health and wellness, um, you know, here and around the Midcoast area, I, I wanted folks to know that, um, you know, I'm a medical marijuana patient, and we're having a big conference um, down in Belfast at the Hutchinson Center this weekend. And one of the things we're talking about a lot, and this is what I'd like Mr. Prechtel to comment on, um, you know, so many people around this country are dealing with the scourge of, of opiate addiction. And now it's acknowledged that in America, 100, out of the 100% of the people who are dependent on opiates and pharmaceutical drugs, 80% of them... Um, were, were first exposed to these opiates by their doctors. And so now we have to deal with the repercussions of the society of, of, of 80% of the people addicted to the, the, the pharmaceutical drugs in our whole country in America were exposed by their doctors. And that should enable us to be able to question whether or not traditional medicine understands what we need. We found here in Maine a lot of patients and caregivers work with the folks who are addicted um, and dependent on the opiates and, and the drugs the doctors give them to use medical marijuana to get off them. And we've worked successfully with thousands of people. I mean, we're working in the state legislature to get it fixed. And I just was wondering, you know, there's this event, as I said, in Belfast um, from 10 to, to 2 at the Hutchinson Center this Saturday on the 6th, but also um, where people can learn about this and how to treat cancer. But I was wondering if Mr. Prechtel would be willing to comment on um, just basically whether he feels um, working with um, medical marijuana to treat things like cancer, which is it's quite clear it works, and, and opiate treatment is, is sort of perhaps one of those things to, to become pre-modern again, a way for us to, to try to return to knowledge from the past and, and work to be more healthy and in tune with nature. Well, that's a big question right there. I mean, the problem is the marijuana introduced into uh, North America in the modern times all came in with uh, all sorts of drug culture with the hippies and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the use of uh, any kind of uh, medicine to help somebody, if it helps them, that's great. You know, that's mm -hmm. wonderful. This whole thing with the opiates is that there's also these new opiates that they're using now that are got all kinds of fillers and weirdness in them, and they really are discouraging, creating all kinds of havoc out there. I've got several things like that. So whatever... Um, Whatever's going to work is going to work. What I'm, uh, and that's fine, and it's great, and go for it. But I'm never advocating necessarily the, uh, an applied substance for a situation in this case. Mm -hmm. What I'm talking about more is, is that uh, natural um, life uh, you know, among intact peoples in the world is not necessarily plant uh, substance. Mm -hmm. Is that the understanding that a human is not necessarily here to be uh, finally figured out how to be 
going to exist of one day or two weeks or six months where everything's going good, the kids are all alive and well, we have enough food for a change, etc., 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 and so on. The American idea is that once I get well, oh, great, I'm well, I feel good, um, let's uh, just keep going on with the same way of life that, and be in collusion with the thing that's making everybody want to get high in the first place. But uh, as far as medicine goes, you know, once you're in a, in a triage situation where there's pain, where there's trouble, where people are trying to recover from hip and knee surgery and all that, you know, there's lots of pain. And that's, that's a slightly different thing than the, the pain of deep grief that people take in order to try to, you know, um, and take all kinds of things to try to avoid that in the same way they would try to avoid their, pain, their knee hurting after someone's put into nylon. So uh, although, you know, that can be very heavily related, we know that. So um, as I said, as far as what you're doing, I mean, I don't really um, say one way or the other, but as far as I'm concerned, it's great if people find a way to survive to the next day. But in a bigger picture, I think we need a culture where we're not using uh, substances to cure in a spiritual situation. In other words, you should be able to get high enough from eating a breakfast that you know you grew and with all the animals that died to feed you. Uh, as you would on any sort of mushrooms, you know. So let's um, let's just uh, learn how to, uh, uh, to to praise a world that is bigger than just the people who invaded it, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I uh, yeah. I shattered my elbow this year myself, and I had to have reconstructive oh, no. elbow surgery <laughs> on my left arm. I fell down some stairs, and, and you know, it was, it was very intense experience and very intense pain, and, and, uh, I know what and you mean. It, was, it, was, it was very intense. But I agree with you. I demanded liquid morphine in the hospital. At sure. the I, <laughs> yeah. I told them, I said, I didn't want any false yeah, drugs. The chips are down. In the last 50 years, they're false drugs. I was like, oh, yeah, those yeah. are all synthetic. They're fake. I don't oh, want Oh, they're terrible. They're not even from, you know, a poppy. You know, it's just really strange stuff. I don't know exactly all the chemical things, but they're also putting all sorts of... Recently, too, in the last six months, it's worse than ever. Yeah, no, people are getting really sick, and yeah, thank, thank getting you. Getting worse and worse, you know. I have a friend, an old friend here. Oh, anyway, I didn't need to go on. Anyway, thank you. I'm sure you can tell yeah. us. Uh, Thank you, Will. Thank you very much for your call. Um, I want to remind callers, this is a live call-in show, and you can call us. Here's another number. There's 469-0500 that you can call us on. Uh, We just have a few more minutes, so please call now and don't leave those calls to the very end of the show because then we uh, we may miss uh, Martine, and we don't want you to miss that opportunity to talk with him. Um, Martine, I want to ask you now, clearly there's a cultural thing uh, going on here. What role can parents play in helping their children to grow up in, in a culture where hopefully in the future depression and addiction will no longer be a threat to yeah, our happiness? We'll, we'll have figured out how to turn it into great beauty. But there what can parents go. do? Well, well, right there, you did it. You said it yourself without knowing it. <laughs> you changed the language. In other words, the language uh, that we use is very military. Uh, Grief and depression uh, is a threat, so we must, you know, have a war on depression. And the thing yeah. is that the parents can change the language, but don't turn it into giraffe talk, you know, none of this business kindness talk. Turn it into a beauty. Uh, the parents themselves are probably as repressed and in, in, in as deep a situation as their children will be if they, uh, you know, put that on them. They're probably not even aware where they would be putting that on. So the parents also need friends. And as far as I'm concerned, a parent can't raise a child once they're 12. Everybody knows that when you turn 13, you realize how stupid your parents are. And then, uh, you know, you want to get away from them, but you still love them. But, oh, God, they're, they're really, 
So you got to do your work before then. Well, no, not only that, but you got to do. You got to have somebody to help at that stage, and then you take their kids. Ah. You take their kids because your neighbors think yeah. you're brilliant. Your neighbors just think you're brilliant. Yes, you know? that's good. And it has to be hands on. And so the idea of recognizing how, like, before you, there's lots of stories, God, I wish you had more time. But, you know, like, before you butcher an animal, how you greet, uh, before you milk an animal, you bow before the animal and ask it to, to be adopted as a calf because you're the one drinking the milk. The section phone is all these deep praises and griefs in, involved in being a parent with young people, but even more so with your neighbors. I mean, when I, I say figuratively neighbors, not have to be your neighbor, but another person's children, because at that point, in order for them to learn how to do this, they can't learn it from the parent because the parent has to become a human being too and is still growing. So these stages of life need, are called initiations. I call them that, and a lot of people call them that, rites of passages. We don't have those, and the ones we have are pretty much bogus, you know. They're all Boy Scout stuff, and so what do you do? You know, do you just kind of shoot by the seat of your pants? Yeah, you try to make culture, and it means that the parents have to have the children see them feeling grief in a way that's sane, and that doesn't mean in a way that's rational. It means in a way that's honest and authentic so that they can see that. That means the parents have to have people to be around them when they lose somebody, like my grandfather, he shot himself when I was seven. He was an Indian guy. I, you know, I didn't really know him. My mother, you know, hid the whole thing, and it destroyed her. Her whole life, I watched her go through that. You know, we're, we're standing for a bunch of Canadian Indians. And the grief of that was the most immense thing. And I inherited that grief, and I realized later that I inherited it. And then at Islam, where I was in Guatemala, luckily enough, the people, they recognized that, and we did what we did. But the point is, is that parents, um, can't let the little tiny children see the horror of life. They have to, to show them the beauty of life. And the beauty is actually really wrapped up with the, uh, the sweet sorrow of, uh, of loss and the seasons and this goose has got to go into the freezer and et cetera and so on. And the children do so beautiful. But they get to a point to where they're going to grow past that. And you're not going to want to let them because they're golden when they're little. So you got to have some great uh, man and woman in the society who's got the same situation with their kid who helps your kid. But that's, again, that means you're getting a culture. So the, the, the parents, this nuclear family thing doesn't work so good when it comes to the bigger picture of, of grief and praise. And uh, that also then keeps the kids out of the drug cycle because that's where the kids go, you know. They're not going to go to the neighbors, you know. They're not going to do it on their own. They're going to end up with some little group of kids that are over there token in the corner and then eventually experimenting with this thing and that thing and um, whatever, you know, especially the rich kids. But the poor kids, they're, you, know, you know exactly where they're headed. And so they're looking for another culture group when they come to 14, 15, 16, and then they end up in this other culture group, which ends up being a, a drug group. And, you know, they're looking for culture, but they're finding drug culture instead. And what else are they supposed to find? That's all they see on the television, the, the guys that are wearing all the suits and got all the money and talking all the nonsense. You know, they're as um, uh, empty and vacant as the rest of the guys, so where do they go? So if the parents can uh, kind of co-opt that way and, you know, get rid of their... I mean, I, I, I'm horrified even to say this out loud because I can imagine all the nonsense that could happen as well. But in order for it to have an actual culture, the parents have to actually be real and they actually also have to be willing to help raise somebody else's child at a certain stage. Otherwise, it's just going to be adoption places and detention centers.
Well, and, and that is especially for uh, lower-income people. Exactly. Um, that's where a lot of the uh, drug addiction leads because, uh, well, honestly, right. that, that's where I work. I work in a, in, yeah. with incarcerated men. Well, that's the economy of the culture. And then, but even then, when they're incarcerated, of course, they think I'm crazy, but I say, well, look how lucky we all are to be here, because we have the chance to talk about all this. You have the experience. You can do this transformation and then go out and teach other people in a way that, honestly, I can't. You have a kind of experience that is so valuable that there is beauty right there in that. That's why I'm saying they, they end up having to become the blessers. And they can be. I've seen it. You know, you know exactly. That's what I'm the irony about. of it all. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. the irony because all yes. the rich kids. And the that's beautiful not the irony. Fact that the kids are rich is there. You know, but they you talk to them, they just walk off because you're not good enough to talk to them, and they they think they've already made it and they're going to make it because once again they they measure their everyday value and how much money they're going to end up with, and so they can always buy themselves out of the situation. If you dropped into you know Bangladesh without any uh, bank account and you, you're not going to be able to fly out when things get tough, you might turn into a person. <laughs> and then you might not. <laughs> I, I want to remind listeners, uh, we have a few minutes left in the show. The number for the call-in, if you'd like to um, uh, float a little bit of beauty and questions by Martine, the number is 469-0500. Um, I want to take a minute right here, Martine, for you to give uh, any kind of contact information you'd like to uh, give our listeners' website. Uh, oh. Modern mentality. I don't even know. I have to look myself. Well, I've got, got it here, to... actually. <laughs> you got it. You to... probably got it. Okay. www.martinepractel.com. And I also have uh, floweringmountain.com. Yeah, that's the main one there. Yeah, okay. Flowering so floweringmountain.com is probably the best. You could also call 505-583-9103 to be primitive. And oh. call my secretary, who's the organizer from my school, and try as close as you get to me. But well, could yeah. we could we talk a little bit about Boled's Kitchen? What do you <laughs> teach there, and why are these things important? <laughs> well, I'm teaching basically what I'm talking about on the phone here. Um, uh, Boled Kitchen. I started Boled Kitchen because I grew up in an Indian reservation about you know 60 miles south of where I live presently. And New Mexico was probably in the reservation, and they uh, right underneath the, the terrible, nefarious town of Los Alamos, and that's where the uh, Manhattan Project was, where they invented all of these uh, weapons of mass destruction, and that they dropped in Hiroshima, and Nagasaki, and so on and so forth, and there it escalated. And every day I would look at that place because my father was a flyer in World War II, and uh, he dropped bombs. And after that, he realized, you know, he, he became pacifist during the war. It's a really long story, but he. Um, I would, and he wouldn't fly, and he wouldn't have anything to do with any military stuff. So I had this interesting upbringing. So I would look at this place, and I said, what happened to the people of the world? Given the second, third, fourth, fifth, and ninetieth chance, they come to this beautiful place they now call North America and South America and Central America, and they made the same mess all over again. What happened? So I'm this little kid asking this impossible question at seven years old, you know, like one of my parents would say. And, and so my whole life I've asked that question. Finally, when I came back from Watsi and living in this other way, I, I thought to make a, uh, a school that was based on world history to begin an everybody's own personal ancestry to attend the school to look into how far away Western expansionism began and all of the beauty that's been forgotten, all the little pockets of peace that are never really talked about in history. Uh, and there are so many. 
so it became this school because I used to teach stuff like that on the road, and then I would do ritual, you know, all kinds of ritual in order to make the world jump up and live again, as we say, and to heal. And so I started, people asked me while I was on the road, they would say, where did you get that jacket? Where did you get that belt buckle? You know, where did you get those boots? I said, well, I made them. You made them? I said, how do you make them? I said, well, I grew up in the place where everybody made everything. So I said, can I learn how to make them? I said, yeah, I suppose. But eventually I made a school. So in the morning is all this history that we teach from my point of view, mind you, with the spirituality. In the afternoon is all this hands-on that relate to that time in history with the spiritual approach to all the so-called substances, which are not substances, you know, the flint, the skins, the weaving, the felt. And oh. all is unknown. Well, they're known. We got one more caller. We're going to try to quickly squeeze in. About the, the, the history of the world. And so it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And there it is. Let's squeeze in one more caller and then see if we okay. can come back to Bullet's Kitchen again. <laughs> we Don't have a caller kidding. from Northport. Caller, yeah. are you there? Yeah, I am. Okay, go ahead. Hello. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the show. I hesitate to even call because it's, it's, you're saying it's such gold. I just want to listen. But I, I just wondered, when the bomb was dropped in Japan, do you think that that event changed things in ways that are almost beyond our comprehension still today? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. senor. I'll take if, my answer. If you, if you would, uh, ever read another book of mine, it's called The Unlikely Peace at Kuchimukik. It has a section on that. As a section on that um, um, dropping of the bomb, because what happened is nobody ever, after who was aware of that, has ever believed that there's any future. Hmm. We we just have a couple minutes left. I hate to sort of. Um... Anyway, you read that book and you you will dig it. It's got a whole thing on it, and 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 then read it over again, over again, over again, and it's perfect what you said. Okay. All this addiction, all this grief, unspoken grief. Yes, right on there. Now, now, in the few minutes we have left, Martine, get back to um, Bolette's Kitchen again. Oh, some more. Kitchen. I, well, I find right that so fascinating. I want to come. I want to come to the school. Well, you can come, but it's hard. <laughs> well, that's crazy. good. Anyway, we're in the middle of the desert. Uh, well, a beautiful, beautiful flowering desert. We're right now full of snow, but it's a big mud, mud building. It's like an old uh, Kiva palace from Morocco, New Mexico, I don't know. And people come from all over the world, and they, we go through history, starting mostly in Altai in Asia, North Asia, and we move through all the nomads and coming in through the Europe and all through the Semitic areas and Africa, and eventually we then luck, you know, swim our way to the Americas and start to see that the basis of all this neurosis we're talking about right now. And so and in, the, in the search for this, I came up with some things which I haven't written my big book about yet, which I'm still planning to do. God willing, give me life and health and everybody in the patience to read it. But um, the thing is, is that it ended up becoming a much bigger thing than I ever imagined. And so what we have is this, uh, uh, people investigating, well, not investigating, but looking into their own ancestry, getting lost at some place, and then finding all these little pockets of things and nobody ever knew. So I teach totally by riddle. I hand out riddles every two sessions. They try to find what is this all about, what it's all about, and they hand it in. And then I teach from during one of the sessions. And then in the afternoons, I teach all the hands-on things. And if I don't know uh, how to do it, I hire somebody who's really, really good at it. But mostly it's just you're stuck with Martine, you know, 13 hours a day for 10 days in a row. So what are, what are some of the hands-on things that you're teaching? Just oh, give some it's examples. So, it's so vast. It's so vast. And they're not just hands-on. They're not just pick and choose. They have the whole sequence, how they come from the very beginning. Going. I've got some students now coming 12 years. 
And so it's, uh, it's just grown in men. You have quite a, a following of, here a in Maine, it. too. What's that? You have quite a following here in Maine. Yes, yeah. My best students are in Maine. Matter of fact, they're on their way down here right now. Yeah. In a couple of, in next week. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of agriculture. There's a lot of uh, silversmithing, uh, coppersmithing, felt making, bronze casting, with not with no modern tools, you know, goat bellows and, and uh, melting out the, the the old ancient Persian poetry out of the azurite uh, and copper yes. and yeah. all of these things. And on and on and on and on and on. And um, even to the point of uh, uh, the great Tobon in a Tusa book I wrote there, it shows how it is uh, actually the, the history of what corn is and how it's ground and how they make this and make that. And so there's that. And then in the, um, some people, you know, they have trouble staying with it, but they, they learn to pray. They learn to do all these things. And it's taken off into the area that's way beyond anything I'm even in control of anymore. So, yeah, it's hard to say exactly what it is, but it's basically you're stuck with me for a long time. <laughs> and then you go home, and six months you do all this other work, and you come back, and then we go again twice a year. So I've got, what, 450 students now, so... Well, again, I can remind remind listeners that you can find out more about uh, Martine and the work that he does and the books that are available at the website floweringmountain.com. This goes on and on and on. His most recent book, The Smell of Rain on Dust, is is, uh, is, uh, wonderful if you want to continue thinking about this subject of grief and beauty and depression and war and all of these things that happen in our culture and what you can do about them. Um, we're pretty much at the end of our show. Martine, I want to thank you so much. I just <laughs> love talking with you, and I hope that we will have a chance to do it again. I also That's want to say... Thing, you know? Too short. Too short. <laughs> too short. Anyway, it's always too just, short. Just make beauty and bless and bless and bless and feed. Make beauty and bless. Ah, uh, we will do that. We will do that. And thanks to John, our station engineer for today. I'm Andre Bella for Healthy Options. Please join us again next month. And in the meantime, stay healthy, stay happy, and make beauty. Listening to WERU FM 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, WERU.org. We're a voice of many voices. We're volunteer powered, and most importantly, we are listener supported. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for On the Wing with Mel. Support for WERU comes from Susan Bakley and Chris Marshall at the 13th Moon Center in Montville, offering shamanic healing, art from the heart, through art, therapy, and classes since 1985. More information is available at 13thmooncenter.net, all spelled out, or 589-3063.